You have seen our towns crowded with furious and drunken savages, our streets flowing with their blood, their arms and clothing bartered for the liquor that destroys them. Is it then to be admitted as a political axiom that the neighborhood of a civilized nation is incompatible with the existence of savages? Are the blessings of our Republican government only to be felt by ourselves? That was Governor Harrison to the Indiana Territorial Legislature in 1805. And I'm Jerry Landry, your host on this episode of the Harrison Podcast. I thought I'd begin with that quote as it helps as a point of reference to where we're going. But for the moment, let's back up 10 years to 1795, where we last left Harrison after the Battle of Fallen Timbers. As important of a year as 1794 was to Harrison, 1795 would prove to be a turning point. Until that year, the only thoughts of romance that we know about with the early Harrison is with a Miss M from Philadelphia. Their relationship, as much of one as there was, was certainly a long-distance affair, since he did not get to Philadelphia quite often. Harrison biographers Freeman Cleves and Robert Owens speculate that she may have been Hetty Morris, daughter of Harrison's one-time guardian, Robert Morris, but no conclusive evidence has been found of Miss M's identity. Harrison seemed to exhibit some fear that his efforts may be in vain, as he expressed in a letter in November 1794 to his brother Carter, in which he admitted that, quote, my sword is almost my only patrimony, and that she was from, quote, a family who must consider me their equal in everything but fortune. Any heartbreak he had over Miss M disappeared in the spring of 1795 when he journeyed down to Lexington, Kentucky. He was on official business, but managed to meet, quote, a remarkably beautiful girl. This is where Anna Sims enters into Harrison's story. We discussed Anna Sims and her family a good bit in the prior episode dealing with Harrison's family, but for a brief summation, Anna and her family were originally from Long Island and New Jersey, and her father, Judge John Cleve Sims, had moved the family westward in pursuit of business ventures. As Sims himself suffered from financial issues, he wanted to establish Anna with a wealthy suitor, William Henry Harrison could have been called many things at the time, but wealthy was not one of them, despite his pedigree. Thus, Judge Sims objected to Harrison's proposal of marriage and ordered Harrison to stay away from his daughter. However, that no went in one year and out the other for the young couple, and while the judge was away on business, they eloped on November 25th, were married in North Bend, and spent their honeymoon at Fort Washington. Just to add some commentary for a second, I think we need to remember that this is the same Harrison who was overzealous in making sure that army rules and commands were carried out to the strict letter of the law just a few years prior, now defying the will of Anna's father, a judge and prominent member of the frontier community. To me, it seems that he must have had some inside information that Judge Sims' objections were weak and that he would quickly come around, or that Harrison felt that passionately about Anna that he was willing to risk his social standing and honor to be with her. Either way, Judge Sims did come around, and it seems that their next encounter two weeks after the wedding, though tense at first, ended amiably. The legend is that Sims asked Harrison how he expected to support Anna, to which Harrison grabbed his scabbard and said, My sword is my means of support, sir. I'd take that with a few grains of salt, but it does make for a nice story. To douse the romantic sentiment for a minute, I feel it only right to bring up a point that I've come across in my research. First, Harrison biographer Borm brings up that men of the time, especially those at a frontier post, 
were not necessarily chaste bachelors and that there were opportunities for female companionship. He asserts that, quote, Harrison, by his own later recollection, was the champion at it. But when I traced his source for this, it goes to David Nivens's Martin Van Buren biography and a letter by William L. Marcy of March 3, 1841, in which Marcy asserts that, quote, I have not seen old Tip, but all represent him as merry as a cricket, careless of the future, garrulous in the display of obscene stories, thoroughly intent with the spirit of luxury. He has, according to his own account, devoted the 70 years he has lived to Venus and Mars meaning a spirit of amorousness. The fact that Marcy was a close friend of Van Buren's and had been defeated in his re-election bid as New York governor by Whig candidate and Harrison supporter William H. Seward in 1838 does raise questions as to how much we can trust Marcy's assessment, especially since he himself admitted that it was hearsay from second-hand sources. However, that is not to say that Harrison had not enjoyed female companionship prior to marriage. There was certainly a different level of expectation for men versus women in terms of extramarital affairs, with it being, as one historian wrote, quote, almost sanctified for men, while women were expected to be chaste. This is not the last time that we will discuss extramarital rumors regarding Harrison, but I thought it fair to mention. Harrison's marriage came as General Anthony Wayne was taking a furlough and returning to Philadelphia. Lieutenant Harrison was put in charge of Fort Washington at a time where there was relatively little activity for the Army in the Ohio Valley. This would prove beneficial for the newlyweds, as Harrison spent the next couple of years trying to sort out his business affairs in order to attempt to bring in a larger income for his now-growing family. Anna and William's first child, Betsy, was born on September 29, 1796. Harrison's slow progress up the ranks in the Army convinced him to resign his commission and seek other avenues of public service, and he was appointed as Register at the Cincinnati Government Land Office in the spring of 1798, then became a Justice of the Peace before finally, with the assistance of a couple of well-placed friends in the government, was appointed as Secretary of the Northwest Territory. Harrison's decisions during this time were affected by numerous larger changes going on in the nation. Following the successful negotiation of treaties with the Indians, as well as Britain and Spain under the Washington administration, there was not seen to be a need for a large army, and thus, officers like Harrison found that there were few higher-level offices for them to move into. Some even found themselves cut from the service. George Washington was finally retiring for the final time from the public service and returned to Mount Vernon in 1797. General Wayne had already died in December 1796 with his death symbolizing the increasing distance from the days of the Revolution into the frontier of the future of the Young Republic. Harrison's new role as Territorial Secretary was a rather powerful one, if for no other reason than due to the consolidation of power in a minimal number of offices. The Territorial Governor was, quote, the fountainhead of official life, unchallenged by any competing authority, and had, quote, the power to appoint and remove all officers, civil and military, except the higher ranks in the militia, the judges, and the secretary. And the territorial secretary, in addition to keeping records for the territory, also became acting governor when the governor was absent, something that the current governor, Arthur St. Clair, was notorious for being. The position of territorial secretary also offered the potential of eventually being appointed to the higher office, as Harrison's predecessor in office, Winthrop Sargent, after serving for a number of years as secretary in the Northwest Territory, had been appointed governor of the newly created Mississippi Territory. 
allowing for the vacancy that Harrison then filled. However, positions in territorial government were not without their issues. As noted by Leonard White in his examination of federal administration during the presidencies of Washington and Adams, quote, One of the principal handicaps to effective government across the Alleghenies was the lack of means of communication. Travel was a laborious and time-consuming, occasionally a hazardous, enterprise. The Northwest Territory was at a bit of an advantage in terms of communicating with the federal government in Philadelphia due to its geographic position, but sometimes the greater issue was in communicating with various officials within the territory itself. As the secretary maintained the territorial seal which was needed to validate the acts of the governor, if the two happened to not be in the same place as often happened, the mechanism of government could slow or become confused. White notes one point in 1796 where a sergeant was in Detroit issuing orders as acting governor, only to learn that St. Clair was in fact in the territory and issuing orders in another part of the territory. From what I've found about Harrison's tenure as secretary, he didn't have any disputes with St. Clair, mainly because St. Clair was out of the territory most of the time. Thus, Harrison was able to get practical experience as to what it took to govern a western territory. By the latter part of 1799, however, the young man was preparing for yet another change of office, as he was elected as the territory's first delegate to the U.S. Congress, capitalizing on the support of transplanted Virginians and his father-in-law's associates to narrowly defeat the son of Governor St. Clair for the position. He would travel to Philadelphia to attend the last session of Congress to be held in that city, and though he would only serve in the position for a short time, it would prove to be pivotal both for the development of the Western Territory and for Harrison's career. As with delegates to Congress nowadays, Harrison was a non-voting member of the House. However, he was involved with committees and could bring issues up in speeches before the full House. During his brief tenure, he narrowed in on three issues key to affairs in the Northwest Territory and which would prove to be foundations in his career. He delivered a speech before the House in January 1800 in opposition to calls to shrink the Army, asserting that such reductions as were being discussed would be, quote, disastrous for the territories which depended on a regular army for defense from Indian attacks. Though Harrison failed in this appeal, his second large issue would be a resounding success. Harrison chaired a House committee which was to review current federal land laws and then went on to push for what became known as the Harrison Land Law, which eased the process of buying lands from the government by establishing new land offices, more effectively parceling out the land, and allowing for land to be sold with the new owner making payments over the course of four years. This bill, with Harrison's lobbying to House and Senate members, ultimately was passed by Congress. Equally impactful was Harrison's work on a committee and later lobbying for a bill to split the Northwest Territory into two separate territories. The area that ultimately became the state of Ohio would be the smaller of the two, but as it was already the most densely populated part of the territory, it would be able to better develop with the government more focused on its affairs rather than having to deal with such a large geographic area as the current territory encompassed. Despite opposition from the territorial governor, St. Clair, the bill was passed and the Indiana Territory was born. The passage of this act would have the most personal consequences for Harrison, as President Adams named him as the governor of the new Indiana Territory on May 12, 1800. With his new post, Harrison would leave the most cosmopolitan part of the United States at the time and take his family to one of the most remote settlements of Americans of European descent in the nation, Vincennes, Indiana.
Vincennes was an older settlement, dating back to 1732 when it was settled by French fur traders. It had passed from French to British and finally American control. But there were only around 700 residents when Harrison arrived on January 10, 1801 to take up his office. While we'll be spending the rest of this episode on the main highlights of Harrison's tenure as governor up to late 1811, there is much more to this tale, as this period of Harrison's life is one of the most well-documented. I recommend Robert M. Owens's Mr. Jefferson's Hammer, William Henry Harrison, and the Origins of American Indian Policy, if you're interested in learning more. Native American affairs would be the first major issue awaiting him upon his arrival, and would be the subject of a large portion of his efforts in office. As Owens and others note, Harrison's record in his relations with Native Americans was mixed. While expressing an early concern about the conditions of Indians in the Vincennes area, he also clearly felt that only by adopting the ways of white Americans could they acquire, quote, the means of ameliorating their own condition. Harrison's views on Indian policy were very much in line with those of the incoming president, who also happened to be Harrison's distant relative, Thomas Jefferson, which may help to explain why he retained his position under the new administration. Yet, however genuine their assertions of wanting to improve the conditions of Native Americans, Jefferson and Harrison ultimately felt that the greater good lay in claiming new lands for white settlement. Owens writes in an article on Harrison's land treaties negotiated during the Jefferson administration that, quote, William Henry Harrison's career as governor of Indiana Territory demonstrates that Jefferson's lofty ideals for civilization and justice were routinely trumped by his consistent support of ardent expansionists on the ground. Predominating views on Indian policy held by public officials of the time suffered from a lack of understanding of Native American history and culture and a presumption of superiority. In the push for Indians to become, quote, yeoman farmers, American leaders ignored the well-developed farming practices of Native American women. In negotiating treaties with Indian leaders, there was little to no attempt to verify whether the leaders in question had claimed over the land being negotiated or were authorized to speak for the entire tribe. So long as the U.S. government got what they wanted, they would push for the fullest interpretation of their rights in the negotiated treaty, no matter how questionable the legitimacy was. From 1803 to 1809, 15 treaties would be negotiated with Indians in the Old Northwest, and settlement would be made available for half of modern-day Indiana and most of modern-day Illinois. When Harrison was accused in 1805 of heavy-handed tactics, such as having chiefs sign over land without them understanding what they were signing, the instructions he received from the administration were to hold further meetings with Native American chiefs to assure them of the legitimacy of the treaty being questioned, as well as to publicly chastise those questioning him. The administration didn't question the validity of the claims, and instead gave Harrison the authority to take, quote, prudent measures if the Indians were not appeased during future discussions. When Harrison was not engaged in public business, he was working on establishing himself and his family in their new environs. Work began on the family's home, Grouseland, in 1802 and was completed in 1804. As described by Harrison biographer Cleves, quote, erected on a gentle elevation in the midst of a walnut grove. Grouseland was the first brick mansion in all that region, and sufficiently large to accommodate a growing family. Of a Georgian style, it resembled the governor's native Berkeley, two and a half stories high, with four great chimneys and thirteen large rooms. 
On the first floor, as at Berkeley, were two rooms of unusual size, one designed for council meetings and entertainments, the other the family living room, illuminated by firelight and candles. Wainscotings of polished black walnut, hand-carved mantles, sashes, and doors were the product of skilled workmen in Chillicothe and Pittsburgh. The window glass, ordered nearly two years before, had been brought from England. Harrison paid particular attention to details of defense. The outer walls, 18 inches of solid brick, were slit for portholes. The broad-silled attic windows designed for sharpshooters. In the cellar was constructed a powder magazine with walls of heavy masonry and an arched brick ceiling, and a trap door led to a lookout station on the roof. Shrubbery, handsome shade, and fruit trees surrounded the grounds. It was a home that can match any in St. Louis, although its cost prevented the governor from becoming well-to-do through land speculation. To pay for the brick alone, Harrison bartered 400 acres of land with an estimated value of $1,000. Pictures and links to more information on Grouseland will be posted on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry.com. With this spacious home, the family also significantly expanded, with six more children being born to the Harrisons between 1800 and 1811. Though Harrison was settling into life in the West, there were still vestiges of his upbringing making their appearance. One of the largest modern points of criticism in Harrison's gubernatorial career is of his attempts to allow slavery in the Indiana Territory. By the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, slavery was prohibited in the Old Northwest. However, Harrison felt that this was hindering settlement of the region, as those with sufficient means to relocate could only be drawn from the Northeast or from the new neighboring state of Ohio, which had ridden the abolition of slavery into its state constitution. Even Kentucky, despite its being across the Ohio River, could not be looked to for many settlers, as it was a slave state. On August 26, 1805, Harrison signed into law an act of the territorial legislature to allow new settlers to bring their slaves into the territory as indentured servants. However, the law conveniently did not limit how long the terms of indenture would be. Thus, some were made out with terms far beyond the natural life expectancy in order to perpetuate a de facto slave system. Even this, though, ultimately would be a losing proposition in the developing territory. Change was coming, even to far-flung Indiana. The Louisiana Purchase had been successfully negotiated in 1803, so the frontier was moving further west. A territorial legislature was established in 1805, and the territory ultimately had enough settlers to spin off the Illinois Territory to the west in 1809. Harrison soon after was writing to the Secretary of War while advocating for seeking further land concessions from the Indians that, quote, without such a further purchase, Indiana cannot for many years become a member of the Union, and I am heartily tired of living in the territory. Harrison would be out of office and moved out of state by the time Indiana attained statehood, but he still had a final role to play in transforming Indiana and Ohio from the frontier to, quote, unquote, settled lands. Relations between the U.S. and Great Britain had been deteriorating throughout Jefferson's presidency, and British officials in Canada had been coordinating with their former allies, the Native Americans of the Old Northwest, to reestablish their strained relations in order to have sufficient force to make the West a theater of war should the two nations come to blows. The dispute over the land cession treaties, the push of white settlers into the area, 
the agitations of the British. All would lead Harrison on a road to a small hill positioned at the confluence of two rivers, the Wabash and the Tippecanoe. Two weeks from now, we will let loose the dogs of war. But next week, we'll have a special Harrison podcast episode. In honor of the upcoming election, we will have President Van Buren and General William Henry Harrison debate the issues of the 1840 election. Until then, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to send any questions, comments, or show ideas to Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, check us out online at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. The podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher, so if you're not already listening to us on one of those, please feel free to go there to download previous episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take care.